This is Digital Pathology Today. Now here's your host, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Among the many features of digital pathology is increased connectivity among and between pathologists and the ability to share and collaborate on images and cases. This lends itself very nicely to the use of social media, both the traditional platforms as well as pathology-specific platforms. Welcome to Digital Pathology Today. I'm Joe Anderson. We're going to be talking with Dr. Jared Gardner, a pathologist with subspecialty expertise in dermatopathology as well as bone and soft tissue pathology from Geisinger Medical Laboratories. Dr. Gardner is very active on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms. We're going to be talking about these as well as pathology-specific platforms such as PathPresenter and Kiko. We've come a long way in the past 10 years. How has social media evolved and helped shape the practice? And where's the field headed? How will social media continue to enhance the field of pathology as well as the careers of individual pathologists? This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by JAV Advisors. With over 16 years experience, JAV Advisors focuses on business and management consulting for digital pathology and artificial intelligence in deployment within histology, pathology, and cytology laboratories throughout the world. Call 213-258-6268 for more information. JAV Advisors. Jared Gardner, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is going to be exciting. We're here today talking about social media in pathology and digital pathology. And uh, who better to talk to than you? So tell us a little bit about yourself, your experience in pathology. And I know you have special interest and expertise in dermatopathology and bone and soft tissue pathology. So, you know, maybe just a little bit about your early experience and how you got interested in those areas. Well, um, my, let me see if I can do my story in a nutshell. I, I actually got interested in pathology when I was a teenager. I was um, one of my friends. Uh, her mom was a, a histotechnologist and the lab manager at a local private pathology lab in Pensacola, Florida. And so I got a job there as like a technical assistant and was, you know, amazed by all the cool stuff that happens in the laboratory. And I knew I wanted to go to med school already. So once I went to med school, I was obviously very interested in pathology from the start. And then once I did some rotations in it, I loved it. Um, I um, had a chance, I think when I was a fourth year med student, I had a chance to hear both Sharon Weiss uh, and Chris Fletcher both speak at like a meeting. I think it was the Houston Society of Clinical Pathology, if, if I recall correctly. And it was so cool like to hear them. They're both great speakers and very knowledgeable and, and talked about all these weird esoteric diseases. So, so early on, I had that exposure. And, um, and then I saw more sarcomas uh, during residency, and, and that's how that interest developed. And then DermPath, someone told me, oh, DermPath's what you, know, you should go into. And when I first, like as a first year, first started looking at skin, I thought, man, I am no good at this. I have no idea what's going on, and I, I'll never be able to do DermPath. And then I did like a month rotation with Ron Rapini, which was just fantastic. He's so funny and one of my favorite dermatopathologists. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And so I did a lot more rotations after that. And then I did fellowship um, in DermPath path and also in uh, soft tissue pathology at, at Emory uh, with Dr. Weiss as my mentor in soft tissue and um, and then uh, went into practice and that's what I've been doing ever since. So that's kind of how I got interested. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I think you're very lucky to get early exposure uh, to pathology because I think it's the key. Yeah, because I mean, tell me what you think about this. You know, I think is it a challenge to get younger people into the profession, you know, medical students and so forth? You know, they might not even be exposed or, you know, we all have first and second year classes in it, but, you know, 
a day in the life of a pathologist or what pathologists actually do might not be accessible. I totally agree. I, I think that there is a uh, difficulty in recruiting um, people to go into pathology for medical school. And I think a huge part of that is uh, because of the exposure. Obviously, there are some people who are have their hearts set on doing other fields or really, you know, don't enjoy, you know, spending time looking in the microscope or the other aspects of lab work that we do in pathology. But I think there are probably many people out there practicing different areas of medicine who would have made wonderful pathologists and would have been very happy as pathologists. They just didn't know that it existed. I, I kind of wonder myself if I if I hadn't worked in that lab, you know, and gone into med school planning to do pathology, would I have found it? Would I have ever discovered it? Because, you know, in the first second first and second year of med school, a lot of times our the pathology-based classes are really Sometimes they're taught by pathologists, but they're oftentimes focused on individual diseases and how to how to understand the, the pathophysiology for the sake of passing the USMLE and understanding it for practice. But like you said, it's not much like what we do every day in real life. So um, I think that's a, a real need. I, th I worked really hard when I, I at my former job at University of Arkansas for medical sciences. I was the course director for a the second year uh, musculoskeletal and bone residence, or I'm sorry, um, musculoskeletal and bone module for the second year med students. So I worked really hard to bring up practical points about, oh, here's why this thing I'm teaching you now matters and how I use it in real life to diagnose patients. And I in encouraged all of them that if they thought anything was even remotely interesting about pathology to come and hang out in the lab, even in their spare time or to do a short rotation with us. I said, you only need a few days in the pathology department to realize, oh, this is what I was born to do. Or like, you know, <laughs> I think you guys are really great and all, and I'm glad you exist, but not for me, man. I want to be a pediatrician or whatever it may be. So yeah, I think that that exposure is really key. I, I've got like a little short video on my YouTube channel to show like, here's what, what we do in the lab, the basics. But I think we need more of that kind of content and more exposure to what pathologists do every day and also to actual pathologists. And I, I think social media is actually helping to, to kind of fill that void a little bit and giving the chance for med students to meet like actual real pathologists and realize that we're, you know, we're a cool bunch of relatively normal people uh, who just happen to like diagnosing disease, you know, that's our thing. I think that's an excellent segue. This is a great opportunity for the profession, not only to bring new people in, but help us do our jobs better. You know, this new era of social media, we'll dive into that, but just how, how did you get started in social media and what platforms are you active on now? Well, I'm active on a bunch of different platforms now. The the main, you know, the mainstay of what I do, I guess, is is kind of Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. Those kind of those are the main pillars, I guess you could say, of social media currently. But there's always new platforms popping up here and there, and I imagine that in the future there will be new you know, really big, huge, giant platforms that we haven't even thought of yet. But I, those are the kind of ones that I really use the most. Um, but I dabble in a lot of other ones just to kind of feel out the different types of things that are out there and, and see what might be the next big thing. But, you know, I kind of got interested in Facebook early on when I was like a resident, I think I was a second year resident, uh, maybe 2006, something like that. My uh, like cousin invited me or something, you know, to be friends. And, and uh, I was like, okay, cool. I'll check this out. And around this, a couple years after that, I think I joined Twitter. Although I have to tell you, I don't remember joining Twitter. I don't remember the day that I joined Twitter, I, I think I joined it and signed up and like just didn't use it for a few years. Then I tried it a little bit when I was in fellowship. I thought, oh, maybe I can do some little teaching on Twitter. And I tweeted a few things with no pictures or I didn't know what I was doing. There was just like a dead, empty space for pathology. At least there was just no one there really or not very many people. So I kind of put it aside. And then when I was in practice in my first year or so of practice in Arkansas, uh, uh, there were some uh, local like food writers. And, and my partner, Sarah Shalen, uh, who's a fantastic derm path, um, and now the chair of dermatology um, at Arkansas and the fellowship director for Durham Path. Her husband, actually, um, Kevin Shalen, he has a, 
a food blog called The Mighty Rib. It's not actually about ribs. It's about all sorts of food. But he and the other local food writers, they used Twitter a lot at that time. They think they've transitioned more to Facebook now. But so I started hanging out with them and got back into Twitter with the intention of kind of tweeting about, you know, food and restaurants and stuff. And then I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. This would be fun to like, you know, I can maybe some, start sharing some cases. And then I realized it was kind of weird to tweet about like, you know, what you had for dinner last night and then a sarcoma or something. So I, I kind of divided up two accounts and then I don't even use the food related one anymore. I stopped that long time ago. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of actually, honestly, how I got back into to that. And around the same time, I guess it was 23. 13, I think I thought about, you know, more about like this idea. I really loved education. I wanted to teach and I wanted to do something with teaching online. And I thought about like starting a website, but it seemed, you know, kind of too complicated. And I like computers, but I didn't know how to do HTML coding and I wasn't really sure what all was involved. And so I thought maybe I'll start a Facebook like discussion group, you know, a Facebook group. And, um, and there were other pathology Facebook groups already, but I decided to start my own. I, I made one for bone and soft tissue pathology and one for derm path. And I thought I'll just invite like a hundred people. I know or something and share some cool cases. And instead, thousands of people join. That's the magic of the algorithm, right? Love it or hate it, it, it's powerful. No doubt about that. Once some pathologists started joining, then, you know, I guess Facebook and told other people, okay, your friend joined this pathology group. You want to join? And then all these people started joining and posting cases from around the world. And I was like, whoa, this is really, you know, people want this. People are really interested in this this type of teaching. And then I gave like a lecture at the CAP that same year, a little small group session and it filled up, it sold out. It was about social media. And then I did another one at USCAP, like a little impromptu, you know, kind of um, live session where people could just stop by and like the whole room filled up and was overflowing into the hallway. And I thought, this is what I got to do with my career. And I, so I put all my eggs in that basket and it's worked out for me pretty well since. I think it's interesting how these things are evolving. I remember when Twitter first came out, nobody even knew how powerful it would be or how you would use it say okay you get 140 characters now what what am I going to do <laughs> you know so it's interesting how it's evolved and even Facebook which I think has had kind of several iterations Facebook is continuously evolving and now you have Facebook groups and, and so on which is completely different I think from how it was used around 2005 or so when it first came out how are pe- how are pathologists using social media? You know, what are they, what do they want to talk about? What are their interests? You know, how how do they find it useful? The basic kind of core of what most pathologists do with social media is sharing cases, their pictures of things, and knowledge about pathology. Whether it's asking a question like, "How do you diagnose this?" or "What do you?" think, you know, this unusual variant of this adnexal tumor might be, or here, did you see this new paper? So it can be both for sharing teaching material and also for receiving education. But then also, I think it's evolved beyond just that into into the, the fact that there's actually a real, like, vibrant community kind of this interaction between pathologists has made kind of a tight knit social group. I've made many friends, I mean, people that are not just colleagues, but I would consider close personal friends, largely because of, and in some cases, completely because of social media. They're people that I would never have met otherwise. And some of them are people that I consider myself close to, but I've still never to this day met face to face. And I feel like that's kind of beyond just the educational aspect for me. It's worked out. It's built my career a lot. I think it's helping a lot of people with career building. But beyond just that, I think it's really like enriched my practice and my professional and personal life by knowing all these other people. And from talking to many, many other pathologists, I would say I've heard those stories again and again, that it's it's a very enriching thing. And people like this feeling of being connected to a community. And I feel like in our field, We're a small field, kind of in a niche area that is not well understood 
by the general public or even by the rest of medicine. So there's something really nice, I think, about being able to be connected to other pathologists, not in your own, only in your own city and state, but in the rest of the country and around the world who all kind of, you know, get the struggle, like the things that we all struggle with and I guess inside jokes about our specialty <laughs> and things like that, you know, we all understand and can kind of commiserate with the problems together and also uh, work together as a group to find ways to do things better. And I think that's a really wonderful, beneficial use of social media and something that really couldn't happen in the old days. I mean, the only way to do that before was to go to a big meeting, right? Like you said, you're at the big meeting and people love meetings for that reason. And we're missing meetings now in the middle of the pandemic and missing this chance to be together, not just because of the educational content that we're missing, but because of the community, right? I really think that social aspect is so crucial for most of us. And uh, social media, it doesn't replace face-to-face interaction, but it it enables face-to-face interaction when it would not otherwise be possible or feasible. And I, I think that's the real beauty of the social media and what it's contributing to our field currently. You know, I mean, it is social media after all. So I think that, you know, the social component I think is, is huge. It's been, a, it's totally changed things for me. And I've met people for, like you said, that we might not meet in person, you know, people from a, geographically all over the world, you know, in academia or other practice environments, there's maybe a hierarchy. There's kind of barriers to meeting people that the online aspect kind of facilitates that. I totally agree. It very much flattens the hierarchy. Um, and also like, you know, bridges across kind of geopolitical borders. You know, I know people who never been to the United States either because they wouldn't have the money to come to a meeting here, or they, I know some people who got funding to come to a meeting, but they couldn't get a visa because they're from Afghanistan or, or another country. And they're somehow labeled and and had difficulty getting a, a visa but yet they can still participate in this conversation at a global level. And I I think, yeah, that's a very democratizing thing. And also even, you know, you might be a little embarrassed or or nervous to talk to a big name, famous person at a meeting. Although, you know, I would encourage any junior pathologist listening to this, don't be. I I went up and introduced myself to Juan Rosai and Sharon Weiss, I I was a fellow at the time. She's like, did you really introduce yourself to Juan Rosai? And I was like, yeah, I did. And she did later say I was the most gregarious pathologist that she'd ever met. And I, she didn't say I was the best diagnostician, but she said I was the best at something and I'll take it. So I didn't put it on my CV, but I was tempted to. In any case, I, I think, yeah, that that's if someone though famous is is on social media, they feel much more approachable because like on Twitter, I mean, it's public. Everyone, everyone interacts with everyone. You can tag anyone in a tweet. So, I mean, I feel like it kind of is a way for well-known people to kind of invite and, and encourage more junior people to, to connect with them and interact with them. And there's a lot of mentoring, I think, that can kind of happen or, men- or, or real like mentoring relationships that can evolve out of that, that initial contact online. I think that's a, a very beautiful um, aspect of it. My sense is it's kind of changing, like you said, flattening the hierarchy, because I think, you know, people who came up, I, you know, I would imagine I might be slightly older than you, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and there really wasn't social media. And depending on the institution you were, you could kind of get locked into some hierarchy or some institution. It could be pretty miserable. You know, people don't like to talk about it, but, you know, <laughs> you know I like to feel people out and hear about their training experiences. And you know, I get a, a, a glimmer. Yeah, I, I kind of went through that, too. It was rough, you know, but I, I think social media is kind kind of going a long way to flatten those hierarchies and get people talking, interacting on a more human level. The social aspect, I think, is key. So what about some of the other roles? You know, so like you said, presenting unknowns would be one. Education be another. And then there's kind of the look at me aspect of it. Look at look at how cool I am. Look at what I'm doing. <laughs> so do you see a lot of that? If you could just kind of break it down, how you see people using uh, social media and pathology. 
I mean, obviously there is some element of self-promotion and social media. I mean, you want to get more followers, not just for the, I mean, it's cool to say, oh, I have X number of followers, but really that's just the number who cares, right? I mean, it's more about like the actual quality of the interaction. That's what matters more. But, but at some level you have to have a certain number of followers for, for social media actually work. So when people first start and they've you've got five followers on Twitter, it doesn't really make sense. It doesn't, you're like, what? There's no point here. What's happening? And it's only once you kind of get more followers that it makes sense. But yeah, I think it, you know that that um, I mean, I've certainly used it to promote myself and my career. You know, I wrote a book. I, I used social media to help advertise the book and help people know it's out there so they can consider buying it. I use it to make people aware of other content that I'm making across different platforms. And I see other people do similar things. But yeah, I, I feel like the majority of what people are doing is they're they're either there to to learn or to educate or to interact and network with colleagues. And so that networking, I think for junior people is really powerful. Like, And it, I don't feel like it's so much just like going and saying, oh, hey, look at me. It's really like having quality interactions with with people again and again over time, you know, it makes you stand out. So if you're a, you know, a resident, you're applying for a fellowship or, or looking for a job in the future, and you know, you've interacted with someone multiple times over the years on Twitter, and it's always been a positive experience, and they recognize your name just because you know, they know you on Twitter. I mean, that's beneficial, right? That's going to help you. And I know of uh, examples where people got fellowships because they knew the, the fellowship director on Twitter. And because of the relationship there, that led to them actually getting a fellowship. I know of multiple times where people got jobs where the job was either discovered through Twitter or because of the connection and they already knew and liked each other through Twitter that led to the next level of the person getting an interview and getting hired. So yeah, I feel like there definitely is, but I think that that self-promotion aspect kind of happens organically as you basically, if you're doing good stuff and interacting in a positive way online, your reputation is going to be just automatically organically built by the way that you behave day in and day out. You know, that's what your, your brand is developed. Basically the, the cumulative, you know, all of the stuff that you do good or bad online that builds a brand for you eventually. And so I feel like it's a beneficial thing though, because you can go on there and do a lot of good stuff that's useful to yourself and to others in the sake of sense of teaching. And then at the same time, you're building up your career, your reputation, all of that stuff. And, you know, that's important for all of us, whether we like, it or not, you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the, the look at me or self-promotion aspect, but that's what we all have to do in, our, in a professional career. You have to promote yourself to some extent to be able to move to the next level, whether that's getting a residency, getting a fellowship, getting a job. In, in academics, it's, par, it's written into the rules of how you get promotion and tenure as you're supposed to develop a national and then international, you know, eventually reputation. And that's, that's part of what we're expected to do in academic uh, medicine. So I feel like we have to like kind of come to terms with that even though a lot of people really don't feel comfortable with it. But so I do feel that people, people use, use it in that way also. This episode of Digital Pathology Today has been brought to you in part by DJT Solutions, your single source for all your digital pathology requirements, from consultation services to system requirements, including installation, training, and life cycle support. Since 1995, DJT Solutions, we are your best choice for your best results. Okay, yeah. So the idea of the personal brand, I think, is becoming more accepted or mm -hmm. more people are becoming aware of the importance of this. Is there any downside to the use of social media? Well, I mean, sure. Everything, I guess, has a downside. I mean, I think the things that make it great and fun can also make it addictive and you, you can, you know, you can waste too much time on it. And it's important to be kind of uh, thoughtful about how and when you use social media. You know, I, I, 
I've tried to make sure there's time where I put my phone down and spend time with my family. Or, you know, when I'm at work and I got a bunch of cases, I put the phone down and get my work done. But there are, you know, and also I, there's sometimes, you know, I'll get up early to try to get a paper done or, or something like that. That's the time where I'm going to get quality, creative work done. It's tempting for me. And many times I fail at this is I'll pick up my phone and I'll, I'll get a lot of great stuff done on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube or whatever. But then I'll be like, you know, I could have really used that time to do the, the difficult, heavy lifting mentally that I needed to finish up this paper and get it submitted or, or something like that. So I do have to, you know, kind of carve out certain times where I'm like, no, I got to not get on, on social media right now because it's going to distract me from something more difficult and important that I need to get done. So I think that's one important thing. And I mean, I think the other thing is you can, if you make a mistake, it is more public. And uh, we've seen that lots of times in, in the news and stuff where people have, you know, politicians or sports people or anyone, right? They've, they've said or done something online that, that really has reflected badly on them. So you do have to use some degree of common sense and but I think a lot of that is just being courteous and just don't be a jerk to people. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's not all, that's not totally foolproof. There are people I think who have fallen into situations totally accidentally that have reflected poorly on them or harmed or impacted their career. I'm not so much in pathology that I can think of, but I, I've seen that in other areas, obviously. So yeah, you do have to be a little bit mindful, I think, of the way you behave because it is at a very, very public place. But I think as long as you do that, and as long as, of course, you always respect patient privacy and never release identifiable info, I mean, this that should be common sense and obvious to everyone in medicine. But I think as long as you do that, I think that there's very little downside. To me, the upside is much, much bigger than any potential downside. It can amplify whatever kind of thing you're trying to do in your career. I use it to do lots and lots of stuff because it's a big chunk of my career now is talking about this and teaching about it and writing about it. But for other people, they may not want to be a teacher. They may not want to share interesting cases. They may just want to be there to learn or or just there to interact and, and you know kind of socialize. And so I think you can use social media for whatever thing it is that you're looking for. It can help you achieve you know whatever your personal and career goals are. Let's talk about the role of social media and pathology education for medical students or residents, or even um, maybe what you'd call continuing medical education for pathologists in practice. You know, you seem to be in two areas. Pathology education, I think, you know, behind the scenes, people outside the profession might not have a good idea of what we do. A lot of what we do is maybe tedious things, right? Like looking for a, a micromet under the capsule in a lymph node or two or three glands of prostate cancer, you know, something like that. But in dermatopathology and bone and soft tissue, I think kind of lends itself to unknowns. Unknown yeah, for sure. Lots of yeah. zebras, right? Lots of zebras <laughs> yeah. uh, to be shared. Which is yeah, kind so of, I do that a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. It's kind of, it strikes me as that's kind of a glamorous thing, right? And people, you know, and the unknowns isn't necessarily the bread and butter, right? The zebras or the exotic cases, but in skin, you know, okay, oh, this is Haley Haley or Derriere's disease, you know. So I think you're you, you have a rich opportunity for that. How do you use that for in education? Is unknowns a big part of it, or I do sometimes unknowns, um, and I've over time converted more to using digital slides for that. A couple of reasons: one, it's cooler and it's really great for learning learners to not just see one or three or four pictures, but to actually be able to look at the whole slide like you would in real life. And it's really beautiful that way. I think also for people that are coming to getting used to pathology, like at the med school level, I think it's really important that we show them digital pathology because it's it's what 
pathology actually looks like, showing them some old, you know, picture from the 1980s of a squamous cell carcinoma that's faded, that's not going to excite people about going into pathology or really honestly teach them that much either. And I feel like that's a real problem, right? Especially in med school education, there's a lot of old reused images that are not very vibrant or real and don't really reflect on what we do in real life. So, so yeah, I think you can share unknown cases. Uh, people seem to really love that online. If you, if I share a case and say, here's what this is and here's how you know, oh, it'll get like likes and retweets and people will say, okay, cool. But if I share a case and say, hey, do you know what the diagnosis is? It's a 30-year-old man or whatever. Oh, people love to guess, right? They love the, it's kind of the gamification, right? And I think it's wired into us or, or built into us over time in medicine because we take tests again and again and again. So we are, I've been conditioned to like taking tests or not maybe to like it, but to be good at it and to want to win, right? To want to get the question right. I think it's built into what makes us successful in med school. Whether that's good or bad is a different story, but, but I think that that's part of why that people like that competitive aspect of trying to figure out if they can get the question right. And I think that's beneficial because people like it, so it draws more attention to the case. Also, I think it's beneficial because like I tell my residents, it's good to learn to be wrong, especially in the safety of a residency program where I, you can say, I think this is cancer. And I can say, well, good try, but no, it's actually benign. But uh, it teaches you that the appropriate level of you know fear or, or appropriate level of caution about cases that you'll have to deal with in real life. And I always think that, that social media gives a great opportunity to be wrong where the only thing that hurts is your ego. If you make the wrong diagnosis on Twitter, no one dies, right? On, a, on an unknown case. No one gets hurt. No one gets sued. But you can actually, you know, you feel like this internal sense of shame, which is unfair and we shouldn't feel that. But we all know that that's what we feel like when we get the answer wrong. Again, it's just this is the way it's built into us in, in medical education. But I feel like that even though that no one is no, the pathology community on, on social media is not shaming there. Everyone's very nice and friendly. But the individual who, who puts themselves out there and gets it wrong, they feel bad internally about it. But I think that you can harness that and you can learn. Right. I mean, oh, man, I remember that case and I thought for sure it was going to be dermatofibroma or something. And actually it was a mycobacterial pseudotumor or histoid leprosy or something. I mean, those are the times where you're like, you remember better, right? When you get tricked, I guess. So I think that's one aspect. And I also, I do like a lot of zebras and I think they're important, but I also really love teaching about like common pitfalls and common practical things, you know, little tips and tricks for everyday life, you know, that I, I like, I've got like little videos about solar elastosis and, and, you know, and when it's missing and replaced by collagen, that means something happened there, like as a scar or it's a, a collagen depositing process, like a desmoplastic melanoma. It's something you got to figure out why that collagen's there. Um, or, you know, little his, I like, I like normal histology stuff, like how to tell melanocytes and carrots tinnitus apart. That's stuff that does is not real glamorous, but in everyday practice, super useful. And if you don't have someone to teach you those real simple little pearls, um, it can really uh, hamper you. And I even see people in practice struggle with some of these these things that are basics just because they weren't taught like the the simple tricks to be able to sort different things out. You know, not not zebra tumors, but you know, basic things and and individual points of morphology. So I actually really enjoy teaching about that stuff. So I and I use YouTube a lot. I, I videos are a huge part of what I what I personally do with education now and um, I'm trying to encourage other pathologists to make videos too because uh, when I travel around the world people have told me that that's the thing they really really need is videos because it's like sitting next to a pathologist at a microscope and being taught and um, some people say you know in our country we don't sit with our faculty like this we only get to learn from our residents or we don't have a dramatic pathologist in our entire country I've had people tell me that which is 
blows my mind, you know, but that they're like, this is the only way we can really get that kind of that level of teaching. So, and people always are telling me, oh, please make a video about liver pathology. And I'm like, sorry, guys, that's like not my area at all. Someone else is going to have to make that video for you, not me. So there's a need, there's a great need for that. And uh, videos are nice because you can teach at all levels. You can make very basic, simple stuff aimed at med students. You can make very complex, esoteric things that are fellowship level and beyond. And, and the content's then available to any, you know, any different level of learner or, or continuous learner. Like you said, continuing education, all of it, it can be met by having different types of content um, at different levels. So I think that's a real, real valuable aspect of things. One thing that just came to my mind as you were discussing that is the user can kind of pick and choose what they want to focus on, right? If this material is available and kind of what I was alluding to before, what you touched on is just the everyday tips and tricks, the pearls. I mean, zebras are fun. It's fun. It's competitive. It's satisfying, you know, and it, it can also help with your ego, <laughs> you know, but I think it's, it's really the day in and day out things that I think aren't really taught as well in training. So I think this, you know, could really open up avenues for people to get these just kind of the bread and butter and the tips and tricks kind of at their own pace as well. I mean, and even things, I don't see people talking about this, but I think there's a need for it. Like, how do you like structure your work day in your cases when you come, you know, if you're in private practice, you know, how do you, how do you make manage all the stuff that you have to do and what order do your cases in and, and what's your system for keeping up with things you've ordered stains on? I mean, I learned those things just on my own doing them in practice. And I learned from watching my attendings, but there's a ton of different ways to do things. And I think that I, I remember seeing different attendings handle things differently. And I was like, Ooh, that's a cool idea. I like that. And I think that's real simple stuff, but some of that stuff is like, it ha plays a big role in efficiency in organizational skills. And I don't really see people talking about that too much. I think there's a huge need for that. And I think there's a big need for private practice people actually to be in the online space and sharing what they do and their tips and tricks for everyday life. And there are some really awesome private practice pathologists who are on Twitter and on other social media platforms sharing stuff from their practice and some some amazing stuff that they share, really, really great cases, bread and butter and zebras all across the board. And I think that's really cool because, you know, a lot of a lot of trainees will eventually go into private practice in pathology, but most of them don't get much exposure to private practice and what it's like because they all train in academic institutions or almost, you know, the vast majority of them are, are centered in universities or something like that. So I think there's a great need for that to diversify the kind of exposure that residents get during their training by getting to meet more, you know, people in a variety of practice settings. So yeah, I think there's a lot that can be taught. Anyone who's in practice has something they can teach, whether they're a world expert or just do the, like you said, the mundane stuff like, you know, hunting for micromets. Well, how do you do that? You know, everyone says, well, just look at the lymph node, but like what power do you look at it on? And you know, how do you, where do you start? Do you go under the capsule first? Or I don't remember anyone precisely teaching me those things. And then later I thought, well, you know, maybe we should be teaching that. Maybe we should say, oh, here you start. I start at this power and then I go to this area and then I double check this and here's how I make sure that I, I don't miss anything. And here are the pitfalls along the way, right? Look, those are histiocytes. They're not actually tumor cells. There's tons of people who need that information, right? So I think that nothing's too basic to be taught. Nothing's too simple. Like you said, everyone's got something to teach. One of the benefits of social media. So let's talk specifically about some of the platforms. So you mentioned YouTube where you've made videos and posted on various educational topics. And then there's a few other platforms I wanted to talk about. Path Presenter, Kiko, and maybe Pathology Outlines we could touch on as, you know, maybe how 
pathologists are using these tools in everyday practice or for interaction with other pathologists? So, well, Pathology Outlines is like pinnacle of online pathology education. I think every pathologist in the world knows about that site. I remember Nat Pernick, who, who founded Pathology Outlines. I met him at uh, CAP or USCAP, I think, when I was a resident. And I was like, whoa, your site's so great. And he's like, oh, great. You want to be involved? And so I did a little bit of writing and editing for them. And now I kind of serve uh, in an advisory capacity, just try to continue to promote their site because it's so awesome. And I love that they've made this really high quality online resource available worldwide for free. And I think that's just wonderful. And to me, Nat Pernick is one of the kind of unsung uh, heroes in the pathology world because, I mean, I don't think you can find a pathologist who has not gone and looked at pathology outlines or who has not Googled something. And the first thing that comes up is, you know, the pathology outline site. So even though it's not like actually a social media platform, it's an example of kind of static old school, I guess, I guess it's old school now online website, like, but websites still have a really important place and they kind of serve as like kind of a placeholder where all the information can be collected. But I love that Pathology Outlines is also active on social media and they post and share new things that they're coming out with. They've recently started doing like newsletters that they send out that are like kind of focused on new topics in different subspecialty areas of pathology. And I think that's a really cool feature that they've recently been doing and then they'll, they'll tweet those out and, and share them uh, online. So that's really awesome. Path Presenter and Kiko, I love both of those sites and use them a lot. Um, I'm friends with the founders of both of them and really, really enjoy those platforms because they've made it possible to actually share digital slides, whole slide digital images online. And, and to not just to be able to look at them yourself, but to share them with anyone on social media. And I don't, to my knowledge, no one was doing that or no one was doing it at this level. Path Presenter really was leading the way in this. The companies that make the slide scanners, actually, I personally feel have, have really struggled over the years to create a good platform for viewing the images. At least all of the ones I've interacted with have been kind of clunky and not well-designed, and most of them have not had an easy way to share online. And so to have uh, these other companies come in, create a platform that allows you to view digital slides often from a variety of different file types and to be able to share them online and use them is fantastic. So I use them, both Path Presenter and Kiko, to share cases online on my social media channels. I use them also when I give lectures. Instead of sending glass slides for like the residents to preview, if I'm invited to give a talk, you know, like I gave a talk at Yale recently to their residents a couple weeks ago. So I just sent them like eight links to digital slides from Kiko and said, hey, go check this out. Then I pulled up those slides, taught them remotely via Zoom. And then I also recorded the whole session. And then later I put that recording on YouTube. People can then come back and review it. So I'm able to like use the same digital content to teach in multiple different ways, kind of simultaneously, really. That's really, really powerful. And in fact, I actually use those platforms for myself, even when I'm not teaching. If I want to get a picture of something for a book or a paper I'm writing, I'll go pull up my digital slide from Path Presenter and I'll take a low power screenshot of it. And that's what I use, you know, in my book. So I actually use them as places to store my own files and my own library of archival cases that for teaching and I use it to obtain images from there for a variety of different teaching things I do both social media and in real life outside of social media too. One of the themes we've been talking about maybe even harping on <laughs> this past year doing this podcast is you know what's taking so long we're all aware of the great benefits of digital pathology and i remember you know like around 2008 2009 we got a one of the commercially available scanners we were able to scan in slides and you think well obviously the benefits of digpath one of them is to be able to share the case with somebody who's in a different state but just the functionality wasn't there right you could scan the slide and look at it on your own monitor but couldn't call up 
the treating physician and share the case with them. You couldn't show them a simple stain and say, well, here's why you know we called this positive. That functionality just wasn't there. Kiko and PathPresenter, I think they're, they filled a void. And I think we're finally coming to that point where we can share cases. And then the social media aspect of, I think is kind of an emerging phenomenon, you know, on top of that, you know, so I think these platforms are, are fantastic. Yeah, I do. I do think you're right though. That, that, like what's taking so long is a great question because the, the tech has been there for a while now to be able to scan a nice high quality slide. The interface is, is the bigger issue. And I guess you probably, you guys probably talk about that with other people who are way more expert than me, but that's been as a simple person who is not an expert in, in digital pathology or, or coding or anything. I feel like that's always been the problem is not so much the quality of the images. It's the difficulty of being able to use the interface. And so I think that's a problem that really needs to be worked around. I think that we are now starting to see some, you know, third parties that are maybe coming to the scene to be able to find a way to say, well, if the vendors who make the slide scanners will not create um, software that allows us to easily interact with the virtual slides, well, then we'll come in and do it instead. And I feel like that's that's what I've seen happen recently, and I'm, I'm really pleased about that. A crucial development. So Jared Gardner from Geisinger Medical Center, thank you so much for coming on. Before we wrap up, maybe just tell us two things. What do you think has changed over the past 10 years? You know, What trajectory have you seen us on in terms of social media and digital pathology? And where do you see things going in the next 10 years? I think with social media, like 10 years ago, there was, you know, nothing happening really, or almost nothing happening. And now we have this, you know, very vibrant, very closely knit online community of pathologists. I, I actually keep a list of, of the pathologists on Twitter. Uh, as I find pathologists or pathology accounts, I add them to a list and it's like uh, 7,500, I think right now. So that's incredible. And what's also cool about it is I think that it's the interaction between pathologists is seen by lots of other people in other specialties. And they're like, whoa, what's up with these pathologists? They're doing something right. I, I hear people talk about, you know, those pathologists, they're really, are, you know, they're doing this thing right. So I think that's really cool that that we have kind of emerged from behind the, you know, the so-called paraffin curtain, right? And we're now out in the open talking about pathology and letting our colleagues see like, hey, we're here. We actually know what we're doing and we're, we're able to help you help our patients, you know, our joint patients together. And I think that more public exposure is beneficial to our specialty in so many ways in, in building rapport with our colleagues and in um, making the public more aware of the importance of what we do and hopefully in recruiting new people into the field. You know, obviously digital pathology has, has changed quite a bit in that time too, as we just were talking about. The future, I do think that, yeah, we're going to see more digital and more, hopefully more AI that's woven into our practice in a way that can make our work easier and safer and better. I don't foresee it really replacing us. Maybe that's partly wishful thinking, but I also think that it just goes down to the, the tech alone is not what it's about. It's about implementation and the interface. And if we still see that, you know, we've had the tech to you know, we'll look at electronic medical records, right? It's simple, like kind of databases. And yet still, most of them really have significant problems with ease of use and efficiency, even though it's 2021, right? And we've had the technology to do electronic medical records for 30 years or something. So I feel like to get people, getting an AI platform to do a task is one thing. Getting it interfaced so that it can actually function within the system of the entire hospital, it's so hard for me to see that doing it like a human would anytime I don't know, I think probably in my lifetime, but we'll see. Someone can come back and put this podcast, throw it in my face, you know, when uh, when the, the machines have taken over in 10 years, I guess. Keeping keeping the human being involved, I think is <laughs> I think we're I think we're gonna I think we're gonna be employed for 
for quite for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I I think so. We may we all do different kind of work probably, right? Our work will change just as it has over time with any other technology we brought into medicine. It's changed the kind of work we do and the way we do work, but the work is still there. And I, I think we have to be a, I think to me that's the key for the future for our, our field is we have to be flexible to coming changes and not, you know, bury our heads in the sand or or fighting against it, but to to embrace those changes and to maintain exert control and influence over it to make sure it's done the best way possible so that we have the best diagnostic accuracy and patient safety and you know hopefully the most enjoyable beneficial careers that we can have and i think that's it's the ultimate ideal goal i guess to do it that way absolutely embrace those changes so we've been talking with uh, dr jared gardner about social media in pathology and digital pathology we'll see you next time on digital pathology today This has been Digital Pathology Today. Please be sure to subscribe. Thanks for listening.